0: So let's do a little bit of, of just review because it's always helpful, I think, to remember uh, the big picture as we get into the, uh, the little stuff. So we start out uh, the Romans 1 and Romans 16, so kind of bookending the whole thing is reference to the gospel. And when we hear gospel at this point, I'm hoping we're thinking gospel in the, the sense we get in Isaiah of God reigns. Um, or the kind of Greco-Roman background of the birth or victory of a king. So gospel is very much related to a new rule, a new victory. Uh, and so we're thinking in those terms more than uh, reading in the, um, the kind of popular uh, contemporary notion of gospel as something like, how I go to heaven when I die. I'm not saying that's not part of it, but that's not, uh, that's not the sole um, idea when we hear gospel. So we're thinking of new rule. Um, that fits very much then into references of Jesus as the Christ, uh, which is the same way of saying Messiah or the coming king. So God reigns, there's a birth victory of a king. So when we're thinking good news, when we're thinking what Paul's doing, doing in Romans, we're reminded that this is kind of central to the concern uh, of who is king, who is reigning, who is ruling, which is going to really matter when we get into uh, chapter 7. Uh, both the beginning and end also speaks of the, be- the obedience of faith. And so as we're thinking about uh, justified by faith and the whole um, discussion of faith, we're reminded that faith isn't just something we do up here, uh, but it's a lived out kind of thing. Uh, And in fact, uh, there's a new book that I've just seen out uh, that captures this idea of Jesus as Christ or King uh, and obedience of faith. And the title of the book is Saved by Allegiance. So he's saying, and I think uh, in a challenging, but maybe uh, proper way that we've so watered down the word faith and uh, contemporary English language. We've so watered it down that uh, we need to use the word allegiance instead of faith, because it captures the idea of uh, that we are going to be obedient to a king. Uh, so I think uh, we would do well uh, to use allegiance language, perhaps uh, until we Uh, can redeem the word faith. Uh, The Gentile inclusion is some problem that shows up throughout. We'll really dig into that in chapters 9 through 11, but uh, that's going on. And references to the prophets at both the beginning and the end, and throughout Romans, reminds us that what God was doing in the Old Testament was preparing for what happens in the New. Uh, So we, we are learning, or we're thinking about how what God was doing before shines light on Uh, what's going on now, as opposed to just thinking God's doing something completely new. Do you have the author on that book? I do not. Um, But I think if you looked up, I think the title is actually Saved by Allegiance Alone. Um, So taking up that that language, Saved by Faith Alone. Um, We have language throughout about justification or righteousness. And uh, this is one of those, sometimes I think Paul just didn't use enough vocabulary (laughs) So he uses the same word about, uh, well, here, four different ways. Um, so to help clarify, when we hear justification and righteousness, uh, I want us to think bigger than uh, the the way we quickly go to this language of the, the righteousness of God is revealed. We tend to, to go right to it's revealed in our new status as forgiven people. Uh, I would say that's one of the ways to hear it, but it's not the sole way of hearing it. Uh, so... Uh, justification righteousness can have that legal sense uh, God dealing with sin uh, whether it's dealing with it properly punishing it or dealing with it forgiving it Uh, but God his righteousness is revealed in properly dealing with sin as it's meant to be dealt with there is this holistic or cosmic way of talking about righteousness which you pick up as as God putting the world to rights uh, to use NT rights language putting the world to rights Um, so it's not only dealing with lowercase s sin uh, but it's dealing with the, the kind of brokenness, that uh, capital S sin, that power uh, that it has in our world. So when we get to Romans 8, you'll hear about creation's groaning. Uh, something uh, is not as it should be. Covenantal. Uh, so here is God doing right, God uh, being right with regard to his covenant with Abraham. God has promised Abraham he was going to bless the nations through him. He was going to give them land. Uh, so the question uh, can become, how is God being faithful to covenant while Israel Uh, is not uh, in the place that they would expect to be. And then uh, righteousness has to do with uh, actions and character. So this is about being a righteous person, doing and being right. So um, a little bit of background there on uh, righteousness and justification. All right, now I'm gonna flip this. Hopefully this goes as planned or not. All right, let's see. I should have practiced this before, I think. I was just lying. I'm going to erase it. <laughs> All right. The other thing I wanted to do this morning, before we get into chapter seven, is give a framework uh, for hearing Romans that uh, tries to make sense of some of this news of, or this language of gospel and Jesus as Christ, the obedience of faith. Uh, the prophets. So this will take me about 15 minutes um, before we get into chapter 7, uh, but I hope this this makes sense of things. Let me move this out of the way. I don't know how... Alright, I know you can see up here. If I write stuff down here, is that invisible? Is that visible? Okay, I don't know if heads are in the way. Don't use invisible link. This in the way. Don't use invisible ink. We'll do. <laughs> Noted. Okay. Um, this is uh, this framework. Uh, the name, really, kind of terrible name, covenantal nomism. Um, so, rather than knowing the name, I just want to sketch up here one way of understanding how um, the big picture of Romans. So, because Paul goes back to Adam, uh, we're going to keep Adam in mind. I'm going to use the language instead of fall. Get some continuity here of decreation. You see things going opposite of the way of creation. And then with that very straight line pointing us to restored creation. So this is kind of basic stuff, um, or it should be basic stuff. Creation is good. If you know Genesis, seven times it's called good. So we, we need to keep in mind the world is good. Uh, as God made it. Uh, As sin enters the picture, uh, we see brokenness. And you don't only see this in the Adam and Eve story, although you see it there, but you see this kind of downward spiral begin. Cain killing Abel, uh, and then violence just um, gets so bad where God says, I got to wipe everyone out with the flood. Uh, So it's not just this one event, but you see how, how sin just corrupts. And so I'm going to call this holistic brokenness and by holistic I mean you see this brokenness socially notice how Adam and Eve uh, you you see this kind of division star with them Uh, it's physical death enters the scene in ways that didn't seem to be there before they no longer have access to the tree of life for instance Uh, and it's spiritual for lack of a better word there is some brokenness in their relationship with God. They're hiding from Him. They've, they feel naked. They feel shame. So things have gone wrong in a larger way. Uh, what we are looking forward to, uh, to use the language that we get like in Revelation, uh, new heaven, new earth, or to keep some parallel here, holistic restoration. When you see the the vision that you get in revelation the stuff you get pointed to in romans 8 creation groaning uh, colossians 1 um, reconciling all things uh, the vision of restored creation is not uh, just a spiritual renewal it's not just our souls going up to heaven when we die that's plato uh, or at least more platonic as there we have this kind of dualistic um, uh, existence but it's, it's god taking his good creation that got distorted And he's making it whole again. Alright, with that framework then, uh, we're going to think in terms of, uh, we'll start with the Old Covenant. So here's our midway point. We'll get Jesus on the cross there. Uh, But Old Covenant. We think about what God's doing in Israel, we might think of, of five aspects I must put my four. All right. Five aspects of uh, of the Old Covenant. We start with God freeing Israel. So God frees them. We're thinking particularly from slavery in Egypt. So far, so good. Uh, Second, by grace, by God's grace, They are brought into the covenant community. So by grace, God brings them into the covenant community. So here we're thinking about uh, this covenant community as Israel or the Jews. Uh, Third aspect of this is there's this expectation of faithfulness to the covenant. So here we're thinking of the law. Fourth, it's not perfection. And I'll explain all these in detail, let me just get them up there. And five, there's the hope of land and vocation. And if you're already getting ahead of me, that's great as you're thinking about the parallels. Uh, But again, recall how the prophets have been pointing us to this. So, this is why I'm looking at the Old Covenant. I'm looking where the prophets are pointing. We're looking for continuity between what happened before and what comes after. Reminded that things came wrong. So, God initiates. We always got to see that. Uh, we don't need to misread or misunderstand uh, the Jewish faith as this faith, faith of works righteousness, as though uh, God says, All right, I'm going to choose you people. Uh, but you're only really my people uh, when you earn it. But God always initiates with grace. Uh, Grace isn't something that just showed up after Jesus. It shows up in more powerful and pronounced ways. But grace was there from the beginning. Uh, Think about that language like in Deuteronomy. I didn't choose you because you were the biggest or the strongest or the most righteous. But God chooses Israel out of grace and out of faithfulness to his promise. He frees them from slavery, it uh, chooses them by grace to be brought into this covenant community, so that's the covenant community of Jews. So initiates by grace, but there's this expectation that they are going to be faithful to the covenant. So this is where the covenant comes in, the Torah comes in. Now, if we get this backwards, it's a problem. If we think, if we think you start here, faithfulness to a covenant, and then uh, you're you're kind of experience some sense of grace, you've got it wrong. God is gracious; he gives them the law to show them how to live, how to be in relationship with them. Um, he doesn't expect perfection. Uh, this is another, another way of, I think, misunderstanding the Torah um, as saying, if you, if you break one law, you're hell bound or sheol bound or whatever uh, you understand um, afterlife to look like in the Old Testament. Uh, there's a sacrificial system. There's day of atonement. Uh, there's a temple. There's, there's all these kinds of, of ways uh, that recognize that, that brokenness is gonna happen, that sin's going to happen. So it's not one sin and you're out. And so the Jews were all sitting there with this great burden, always feeling like, oh man, uh, I, I made a mistake with this or that. Now I'm out. Uh, that's not how it worked. And part of the hope um, as God redeems them is that he's going to give them land and that he calls them to be a kingdom of priests. Uh, they're going to be those who, who take who go into the promised land, uh, and they, they care for the land as they were meant to back in Genesis 1 and 2, um, and they are a light to the nations, as God says they're going to be. You're going to bless the nations. So Israel wasn't just to go to the promised land and just kind of sit back on lawn chairs. That's not the idea. They were going to go to the promised land, uh, this land of goodness, and then they would have a role to play as God's image bearers to bless the nations. So far, so good? So if we think of the parallels then uh, that we get, Uh, in Romans and elsewhere we see the same idea of freedom but now it's not freedom from slavery in Egypt it's freedom from the old covenant so we'll get some of that uh, here in um, especially in Galatians but here in 7 and from the slavery of sin we saw this in chapter 6 two weeks ago We'll see it again today. We'll see it again in chapter 8. What God was doing, freeing them from the slavery of Egypt, was preparing for a greater freedom from the slavery of sin. I'll number these so it's at least easier to see that separation. Oh, by the way, if this is Old Covenant, this, because of the cross, is the new covenant? If you uh, recall Jesus's language, um, as uh, as He's at the Last Supper and He's taking the uh, the wine, He says, "This is the new covenant in My blood." Uh, so He's He's picking up on this. This old covenant is is uh, is going away, um, not because it's all terrible, but because a new and better covenant is available. So as we think about what this covenant looks like. Um, here we are. Uh, So there's freedom. There is grace uh, to enter, or by grace you're brought into the covenant community. And so this the new covenant community is not Israel, it's the church, which if you uh, pay attention, I'm sure you have, you've seen how often the church is referred to as the new Israel. It's a new people of God. As James writes, he writes to the 12 tribes in Diaspora. 12 tribes is Israel language, even though he's not writing to Jews necessarily. Um, So uh, there is freedom. There is this initiating grace by God, not because you're good enough, not because you've earned it, uh, but because God's grace always initiates and makes this possible. And to see the connection, there is this expectation of faithfulness or the language I put up here, allegiance. Whereas earlier the expectation was you were faithful to the Torah, here the expectation is that you're faithful, and we'll get this more in chapter 8, you're faithful to the Spirit or to the general law of love. And we know love is not about good feelings, it's about that kind of merciful, sacrificial love. Love of God, love of neighbor. Um, Fourth, this is not about perfection, This isn't a new kind of works righteousness. And five, there's hope of land and vocation. Land, we're thinking over here, new heavens and new earth. And vocation, same kind of language we get. We're referred to as a kingdom of priests or as ministers of reconciliation and I'm sure you can't read this very well. So as we kind of look at these parallels, so a couple of things that I wanna draw your attention to as we get uh, ready for chapter seven. The old covenant is not works righteousness. It is God's initiating grace. Jews recognized that uh, they weren't needing to be perfect in order to be part of this covenant. Uh, and uh, they were looking forward to land and vocation. Uh, things I wanna draw your attention to here, Uh, Freedom, we're thinking freedom from the Old Covenant, freedom from the slavery of sin. And as we think of sin, uh, we're thinking of how it not only frees us from the guilt of sin, but throughout Romans we've seen that sin isn't only about guilt, it's about um, keeping us from the lives we were meant to live, Uh, keeping us from proper vocation, keeping us from being kingdom of priests and ministers of reconciliation. Uh, There is God's initiating grace through the uh, sacrifice of Jesus that brings us into a community, a covenant community. Uh, Third, and this is picking up again back over here, saved by allegiance. Um, As part of this community, uh, as part of the redeemed people, it is not uh, as though the period ends here at grace, uh, that there is this expectation that we live accordingly. You are part of the New Covenant. And being part of the New Covenant means you live as one who is part of the New Covenant. Um, It is is not enough uh, to stop at grace, Um, but uh, you have to live this out. Not perfectly. Uh, We learned that we're not expected to be perfect, um, but we are expected to strive for faithfulness. That matters. Um, There is no, uh, maybe using Bonhoeffer's language, cheap grace. Um, if you're in, you're all in. Uh, you're either going to be uh, giving your allegiance to um, to God as King, to Jesus as King, uh, or you're going to let sin rule. And so we're going to see in chapter seven. Uh, and the goal then uh, is that God is going to bring restoration. Uh, there is what was foreshadowed here with the Promised Land uh, is is um, fulfilled and brought even to a bigger way. Uh, with this expectation that God is re- going to restore um, creation as a whole. So we'll get to that in Romans 8, um, creation groaning. And then we have lives to live within this um, larger story. So um, that might be a helpful way uh, to frame this. Okay. Can I was going to ask you one yeah. quick question. Of I want to
1: get off the track that you're on there. Uh, I was talking with a friend of mine the other day who said something that I'd never really thought about before. He, mm-hmm. uh, he was talking about the Jewish race. He said, they don't really believe in an afterlife. Uh, and your hope of land and vocation would seem to be yeah. here where our hope of land and vocation is both here and later on there.
0: Yeah. Well, you, you get this even in the first century where some believe in the resurrection and others don't. Um, so there is, you know, there is questions about the afterlife. Sheol uh, is, you get some references to Sheol. That's the main thing you get, which is a very vague um, kind of shadowy world that we don't know exactly uh, what that's understood to be. Uh, you get some stuff in Psalms, um, maybe Ezekiel and Isaiah, that that can be read as resurrection. Um, but it's not it's not the focus. The focus is very much a, a this time, this worldly thing, um, and so this is this is why you get some of the stuff like Job um, and others, in the Psalms, the lament Psalms. God, what, where are you? You you told us this, and it's not like that. And and look at the uh, those who live unrighteously are experiencing the goodness, and those who live righteously are not. Uh, and so it's beginning to point uh, to this larger truth, that that God is God is going to be faithful uh, and. Um, Uh, But it's going to be a little different than they're expecting. So I think of this as foreshadowing, yeah. But, um, you know, it's like saying, what do Jews believe? Like, what do Christians believe? (laughs) There's going to be a spectrum. Um, So some do, some don't. Yeah? I don't know if
1: covenant theology is really a, a pronouncement in Romans because when you look at grace, grace began, so to speak, with, everlasting covenant was given to Abraham that was a land promise uh, that was irrevocable from God and it wasn't pointing to some sort of new heaven and new earth it was a a valid um, endorsed covenant irrespective of what um, the Jews did and of course they have their land back Day, and I'm not getting into you know premillennialism but there's an irrevocable promise about the new covenant that did not change with Christ. So really when you when you look at it sure there's something new about it is that Christ uh, became the uh, official sacrifice but so if I can agree that, that covenant theology is pronounced that heavily in Romans I mean it's more of a book of law and the law wasn't necessarily a part of the that irrevocable covenant that God promised Abraham that um, is, will happen and I think you might get some of that later on in Romans about you know, Jews, although they're enemies of, of the cross of Christ, are still there, mm-hmm. in the elect and the saved, which is a very controversial verse. But yeah,
0: and we'll, we'll get to that in a bit. It, it, there. So, so we'll, um, that, and we can talk where, more at the end, because uh, i got to get where. into seven. But so the, uh, the idea uh, with this, kind of building on to the references to the prophets, is that uh, while it's not as pronounced, so this is what uh, folks like N.T. Wright are saying: uh, is it's it doesn't need to be so explicitly stated because it's kind of um, it's part of the assumed dialogue. So this is kind of like, yeah, we know this covenant story. We know we're part of a new covenant. So we don't always have to say it explicitly. Uh, this is kind of the um, the inner logic that we have gotten that we have forgotten. So this is bringing us back into that. But we can talk after if you wanna if you wanna push no, a little bit more. That, that's fine. Um, All right, chapter 7. All right, chapter 7. Now, with this background, with those uh, kind of bookends, uh, let's start in verses 14, because this is some of the famous stuff uh, in Romans 7. And I'm going to suggest that, um, that this can be read in a sensible way within this framework Uh, but start in verse 14 we know that the law is spiritual but I am I don't know if your translation says unspiritual or fleshly sarkica is the language uh, sold as a slave to sin I don't understand what I do for what I want to do I do not do but what I hate to do and if I do what I do not want to do I agree that the law is good as it is it is no longer I myself who do it but it is sin living in me For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my, yours might say, sinful nature, it's literally flesh, sarcos. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So two primary ways we can interpret this. Um, One is it's the ongoing Christian struggle with sin. This is how it's typically read, and I don't want to suggest that Christians don't continue to struggle with sin, or else I'm not a Christian. Um, But that doesn't seem to be Paul's point here, and I'm going to suggest that what Paul is doing uh, in verses 14 through 20, when we read it in Romans, in the larger context of Romans, uh, this is about uh, life apart from Christ. This is life prior to Christ verses 14 through 20. So, being a slave to sin, doing what we don't want to do, this is not Paul talking about Christian life, he's talking about pre-Christian life. And I'll give you some reasons for reading it that way, why he's saying pre-Christian life. First, I really, I'll erase this. First, chapter 7, is bracketed by references, let's see, 6, 17 through 22, and 8, especially verse 2. In both 6 and 8, notice we are free from sin. I'll read it in case you don't have it in front of you. Thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, You have come to obey from your heart. Verse 18, you have been set free from sin. Verse 22, you have been set free from sin. So, we have set free from sin. Uh, Basically, three references. Chapter 8, verse 2, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So he also sounds like set free from the law of sin and death. So before, what's the Christian status? Set free. After, in chapter 8, what's the Christian status? Set free. So in Romans 7, 14, when he says, um, excuse me, let's do, um, well, we'll read it again. We know the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual. Sold as a slave to sin. See that in verse 14? So it's strange for Paul to say, here's the Christian status, here's the Christian status, uh, and you're still a slave to sin. This is why many, including myself, uh, understand Romans 7, Uh, Than to not be speaking about a post Christian, uh, but a pre Christian um, experience. So now that you know where we're going, uh, we'll go back to verse 1 and I'll show you uh, how I think uh, and what I think Paul is doing then. All right, Uh, we'll do uh, verses 1 through 6 to begin with. Do not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law. And this doesn't mean he's only speaking to Jews, he assumes that uh, Gentiles will know the law at this point too, that the law has authority over someone as long as that person lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another to him who is raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. Uh, so verse four, we have died to the law. I think, um, following what we get in chapter six, verse four, if we go back a chapter, so he talks about dying to the law in chapter six. Um, I got the wrong verse reference in here. Um, Well, uh, here it is, verse, chapter 6, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified. We know our old self was crucified with him so the body ruled by sin might be done away with. So chapter 6, 6, I think is saying something very similar to what we get in 7, 4. That is, uh, died to the law is pretty similar. I'll say equals even though I don't think it's entirely equivalent. Um, the old self-crucified that we get in chapter six six. Now, as we saw in chapter 5, there was this language about the old Adam and the new Adam uh, that led right into chapter 6. So this whole idea of dying to the law and the old self-crucified uh, seems to mean something like uh, that you're not simply... Um, connected only with the old Adam. See if I have a a less... um, We're getting something like an old Adam versus the new Adam idea I think is still in the background here. We die to that. uh, We are made alive uh, in this new way of life. Um, The the language of uh, marriage here um, might then uh, be picking up Uh, On this idea, we're no longer married, so to speak, to the old Adam, no longer connected to him in that way. No, we're the bride of Christ, the new Adam. Uh, And so we share a new connection, um, a new nature. Uh, And then, (laughs) Sierra, you have a question? And then verse five and six uh, is kind of this um, summary of chapter seven. There's before and after. Verse five, if you were to put notes there, verse five is before Christ, when we were Says here, in the realm of the flesh, which isn't the best translation, but when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so we bore fruit for death. That's before Christ. Verse 6 is after. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. Before Christ, this is our life. After Christ, it's life in the Spirit. Before Christ, Uh, the faithfulness was to Torah. That's what you were expected to do. Now, in Christ, we are faithful to the Spirit. That is what's shaping us. Uh, So we are freed from the law, but not free to do what we want, because now we are slaves to God or slaves to righteousness, uh, as we've seen um, throughout and as we'll continue to see. Um, Okay, so far? All right, verse 7 through 12 then. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law, for I would not have known what coveting really was that the law had said, "You shall not covet." So, in part, uh, as we learn about the law from Paul, in part the law reveals sin. So the law reveals sin, or as we saw back in chapter three, it makes one conscious of sin. Um. A side note here, why pull out covet? Because some see the whole uh, Torah as, um, as um, flowing from the sin of covetousness, so maybe he's, he's pulling on that that you see like in someone like Philo. Um, it's not important for this point, but uh, kind of fun to know some background, potential <laughs> background. Verse 8, but sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. We're reading in the whole of Romans. We know back in Romans one that sin isn't technically dead because it has been uh, messing with the human race since Adam. We saw that back in chapter five as well. So he seems to be speaking a little bit of hyperbole here. It wasn't completely dead; it still existed. But his point, I think, seems to be something like it didn't have the same degree of power, the uh, same degree of power, whether uh, to shape our lives or to produce guilt. Uh, But what sin does, is it reveals, as the law reveals what's wrong, uh, sin is then able uh, to help you break the law. When you break a law that you know what it is, there's greater guilt. So sin gets increased power because there's increased guilt. It also has increased power um, because it has a better or a stronger way of shaping our lives. So sin wasn't literally dead, he's using hyperbole here. All right, verse 9 is where it gets particularly confusing. Uh, why some people uh, have read this as the Christian condition rather than the pre-Christian condition. Verse 9, Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life, and I died. So, I here, first person I, um, uh, as far as I understand, and it fits the context, it seems to fit the Greco-Roman background, it's a generic I. Paul isn't saying, this is me and my background. Um, but he is doing something like we do when we use the word, when we kind of presumptuously say one. One may think that this. Uh, he's saying I in that sense. Again, why do we think this? Because for him to say uh, I uh, is not going to fit what we get around it. Moreover, it's hard to think of a time when Paul was ever apart from the law because we know he was born and raised a Jew. So he seems to be speaking generically of Israel. Um, So he's saying, uh, I kind of finding myself in the larger Israelite people, uh, we were uh, at one time apart from the law. God brings them out of Egypt. There was no law then. There was this kind of, uh, he says, they were kind of alive, at least with regard to sin. But when the commandment came, because Torah came after uh, God uh, delivers Israel, uh, when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good." So We haven't finished this yet. Uh, We're going to continue this, but once again, two reasons why the I doesn't seem to be literally Paul. One, he never seems to have existed apart from the law, so it would be hard for him to actually be making a self-reference. Um, uh, is that is that true that he was never
1: yeah I mean if a young person is growing up as a
0: child and they're not mm -hmm. aware of sin so it's like an age of accountability kind of reading so that's that's one way of reading it that he's talking about his life before he hits this age of accountability Um, and that's that's possible I think because so much of Israel's story has been in the background and it will continue to be, it will become the foreground in chapters 9 through 11, um, and that the age of accountability is not as much there, I think it makes more sense to read it as I, as Israel. Um, and we think about how Israel uh, did the Passover. Think about how much, it wasn't like that happened to our ancestors, but the language of Passover is is we, it's us. It's present tense. Uh, you know, our father, or we were, you know, this. Uh, and so, there is this, um, which we don't do it much now, but there is this identification with that past that can allow you to speak in the I in the present tense. Uh, so I think given the background and the foreground that's focusing more on Israel, it's more that. That's, but I could be wrong. Some people take it as an, occasion, as an age of accountability thing. Um, verse, um, verse 10, uh, the commandment that was intended to bring life brought death. Verse 10 and 12, what was the commandment? It was bringing life. It was holy and righteous and good. So is the law the problem? Paul's going to say, yes, no, no, yes, (laughs) as we see. Uh, The law itself was good, but what sin does, because we're living uh, here where sin rules, sin takes that which is for good and twists and distorts it. Uh, It takes something uh, that was intended to bring life and holiness, and it brings death and unholiness, because that's what sin does. Uh, So maybe you're already looking ahead to thinking about here's what happens when sin rules. And so, oh, I erased it. Uh, What we're looking for is the gospel, the good news that someone else reigns, that God reigns, that Jesus reigns, not just uh, forgiveness, which is, again, important, uh, but we need a new victory, a new power uh, over sin, which just destroys everything. Uh, C.S. Lewis talks about how um, sin... Corrupts the good. That's kind of what sin does. And the greater the capacity for good, the greater the capacity for corruption. So you take something that's holy and righteous and good that has this incredible capacity to bring life, and what sin will do is take that incredible capacity for life, and it'll uh, then have an incredible capacity uh, for death and destruction, which is so much of um, of Israel's story. So Paul uh, puts the focus now. The problem is not so much the law. The problem is capital S sin. Um, so we can't take sin lightly. We've got to take seriously what it's doing. Uh, We're not just those people um, who are completely autonomous creatures who can choose to or not to sin 100 uh, percent. But there is a sense in which sin shapes us in ways that we don't want to admit. We especially, right, as Americans want to be free uh, from any sort of thing. We want to be free of, uh, to, uh, you know, of our own destiny. But Paul says, with sin you are not free you might think you are but that's just sin deluding you uh, ultimately uh, you are being shaped uh, whether you know it or not all right verses 13 verse 13 kind of a transition here to that which is good then become death to me by no means nevertheless in order that sin might be recognized as sin it used what is good to bring about my death so that through the commandment sin might become utter- utterly sinful so it seems to be saying something similar here sin distorted the law And yet, uh, maybe uh, we're getting the sense that even in its distortion, God is using that uh, to bring sin, in a sense, to its fullness so he can uh, destroy it in its fullness through Christ. That's getting ahead of us a little bit. So now, coming to verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am fleshly, or I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. So here, this first person plural language, we know, uh, if I'm right, Uh, The we who's sold as a slave to sin, he's speaking of Israel. This is prior to Christ. We know this. We know this is our condition. We know that sin rules. We know that the law is good, and yet we find ourselves unable to keep it, as we're about to read. I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate to do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. See the focus on the law here? As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me. This seems to be this condition. They've been given the law. You get Psalm 119, the celebration of the law. The law is good. Uh, The law is going to bring life. The law is teaching you how to love God and love neighbor. And yet, the story repeatedly is that they're unable to keep it. Why are they unable to keep it? Because of the rule of sin, uh, Paul seems to be saying here. So I find this, I'm in verse uh, 21 here. Um, Oh, before I get to verse 21, I, I don't want to discount that Christians still struggle, as I already said. Uh, but I think the difference for Paul is that for the Christian, sin doesn't have the final victory um, either regarding our guilt or our living out our calling as faithful people. Uh, that, that though we still struggle, we don't struggle in the same way uh, because we don't struggle apart from the Spirit. Uh, we have the Spirit with us to empower us to better live this out. So yes christians struggle but not in the same way now verse 21 so i find this law the language of at work isn't in the greek so i find this law although i want to do good evil is right there with me for in my inner being i delight in god's law Um, again to draw your attention to this notice how much he's talking about the law from verse 14 we know this about the law Uh, verse 16 i know that the law is good Um, verse 22, I delight in God's law. Why is he talking about the law so much? If this is about a post-Christian experience, because it's not about a post-Christian experience. He's talking about the pre-Christian experience of those who are under the law, which we are not under, right? Because we've been set free from the law of sin. We are set free from sin. Um, We are set free from the old covenant. But I see, verse 23, another law in me waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin within me. I wish they wouldn't put the word at work in there. Um, It's not helpful. Um, Verse 24, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Yours might say that is subject to death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And verse 25, what do we get uh, from Jesus Christ, our Lord? In my mind, I am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to sin. Sorry, that's the old, um, the old experience. Chapter 8, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. So the old experience under the law, slaves to sin. The new experience in Christ, chapter 8, verse 2, through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what it was powerless to do, Christ accomplished. This is why Paul says in verse 25, thanks be to God. Not thanks be to God because I'm still here. Thanks be to God because I'm part of this new reality uh, that gives me greater freedom from sin and death. Part of the problem, right, is that we don't always seem to experience this. Uh, we we would expect living over here would feel a lot more like victory, <laughs> a lot less like defeat. Uh, and this is part of why it's hard to read um, Romans seven. And I um, I don't know, honestly, I don't know why why the struggle continues to be as hard as it is. Um, Yeah, I simply don't.
1: Only because you can read chapter 8. Yeah. (laughs) I I mean, if you you stop at 7, you're going to be miserable.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Because you struggle with what, but 8, that's the only way you can deal with it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, there's good news coming. More good news, yeah.
1: It is that you are are and are free. Mm -hmm. As much as you can't get it through your head. You know, once somebody's told you that this is wrong, sin which is this entity yeah. it's a, the evil entity in the world is constantly trying to take you back
0: mm-hmm.
1: and, and give up that freedom that you have so.
0: yeah and that picks up on so much of what Paul talks about where he says look you're no longer a slave to sin so live it um, but we, we don't live as much in this reality do we? We live back in this reality um, and so yeah it's a, it's a <laughs> challenge maybe George can, uh, can help us more live live in this reality um there is this you know, you get into Romans, hold on just a second wait just a second this reality is is where sin is completely dealt with and so one of the things that we're we're dealing with is we're in this kind of already not yet this is in part experienced but not fully experienced <laughs> so sin we might think of this in terms of a dotted line sin rules here and then it's got a kind of partial rule here before it gets fully X'd out. And so we're, we're called, no, you're not a slave to sin. And we have language, um, verse, chapter 6, verse 22. You are slaves of God, chapter 6, verse 18. Slaves of righteousness, chapter 6, verse 16. Slaves of obedience. You're going to be a slave. You're going to have something rule you. Uh, and so our struggle is not to be ruled here. And the good news is, is that we do have a chance. We do have a choice. And maybe um, maybe what we need to learn to do is how to lean into the spirit, so to speak, uh, not just in a uh, charismatic sense, uh, but in a uh, giving our lives over to the spirits. Hold in just a, a second. I got a distance class, so but then I come just, up and talk to I me. Chapter eight. Um,